0: Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and that Indigenous sovereignty was never ceded. I pay my respects to Elders and Custodians past, present and emerging, and to those of the lands that this podcast reaches. As I embark on this process of speaking and listening, I'm doing so in the home of one of the longest continuous cultures of oral storytelling on the planet.
1: As artists, we're looking, observing, learning all the time. Mm. And, you know, many of us study and and hone that practice in specific ways. Mm. Others of us practice day-to-day in other ways that hone those skills. And we need to trust that we are trained. And it's not just Mm. your gut or it's not just intuition. Intuition is based on experience.
0: I'm Ty Snaith, and this is A World of One's Own, a series of conversations with women and non binary artists I respect and admire. In each of these conversations, we attempt to break down the how and why of what we make. Together, we look at physical processes and how they relate not only to outcomes, but also connect to the unconscious or non visual parallels and needs in our lives. Today, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Meredith Turnbull. With a dense, research-based practice, originating from her beginnings in photography and art history, Meredith has also always kept a jewellery-making practice alive, even through studying and now teaching in fine art. This ongoing respect and fascination in the decorative, alongside the conceptual, underpins her work. We touch on some pretty useful stuff in this one, how to maintain a sustainable practice, Working out what is important to you, which institutions do you want to work with, what speed do you want to work at, but also the puzzle of categories. Where does your art end up? Who decides what our work is labelled as? How does time affect the way a practice is seen and categorised? Meredith has a lovely way of championing other artists' work. We unpack her dual role as artist and curator and what it means to maintain both. We begin by talking about being a teacher as well as an artist. Actually,
1: I've been teaching sessionally for eight years. Oh, wow! Okay, <laughs> um, I've taught in the art history and theory department there, and also taught at RMIT University. That's right. But this is maybe the second year teaching studio more intensively, mm. and I've really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's uh, it feels incredible to teach studio and more authentic in a way than some of the other teaching roles that I've had. Do you think that's because of about sort of
0: materiality and experimenting or do you get more sort of breadth in studio,
1: in a studio? It's definitely part of the materiality and but it's also about being in that space with the students and talking through their ideas, responding. I like to respond really one-on-one and think how best can I help the student realise what they want to do and to really, I guess, accentuate their potential and their own kind of aesthetic vision or Hmm. mode. You sound like a good teacher. (laughs) I don't know about that. (laughs) But also, um, you know, I think I feel very privileged to be in that position doing that. And I remember some of the experiences that I had as a student and I don't want them to share those. I want them to have, you know, kind of affirming positive experiences, especially in first year, which is the other year that I teach. And how does it affect, like, just the role of teaching? How does it affect your practice as an artist? Probably in a number of ways, but I guess mostly it's very stimulating. Mm. Um, This semester I've been working full-time, so in some ways my practice has taken a back step while I readjust to that but Mm. that was also conscious move as I'm assessing kind of the sustainability of my own practice because I'm kind of in my 40s now and that's a big question for me how to work effectively and ethically into the future so you mean how to maintain a practice how to maintain a practice what I want to do with it what I want to say with my work and And what have you worked out I think it's still in process. It's <laughs> kind of early. yeah. Um, but, you know, I think everything's up for grabs now, what type of um, institutions I work with and um, whether or not Part of my work is promoting other artists or it's more kind of solo projects or research-based. Because in the past you have, I mean, in some ways we have
0: that similarity in that you um, often do work with other artists in a curatorial role or that sort of leaks into your practice as well. Do you want to talk a bit about that side of what you do as well as making, you know, that sort of curatorial vision that you sometimes
1: have? I guess it started off because I kept seeing artists whose work I was really interested in not necessarily being championed or shown in galleries Mm. and at the same time as kind of studying, I was volunteering in galleries and I have really come through the gallery system in many ways, working as like an attendant, invigilator, mm. project manager, then assistant to artistic director as mm. a curator. So I've had that professional experience too. From and the then, other side. From yeah. the other side. And mm. from a, f- at a certain point I ha- made a decision because I was kind of getting encouraged in a particular way to be a curator and getting a lot more support for that than I was yeah. getting from my art practice. But I decided not to do it. Mm. Like it was difficult to make the decision to know, you know, to follow something that I felt was more really more what I wanted to do, but mm. in the end I think it was better mm. for me as a person to do that.
0: I think for for everyone in Melbourne <laughs> it was a better outcome. Because your practice is so um uh unique in a way in that it, you do have that sort of knowledge and intelligence that comes with being a curator or um, you know, that on the from the administrational role. So you're you're good at writing, you're good at putting your ideas into words, but at the same time as a maker it gives you this kind of like empathy, to be able to do both. You're the whole
1: package. Well, that's a very nice thing to say (laughs) but also have a lot of respect for what other people do and I I know how hard it is and Mm. I'm not the sort of curator that wants to fit someone into a thematic exhibition. I'd Mm. much rather showcase someone's work in practice or let the idea from the show really come from their research Mm. and what they do. And, you know, sometimes I talk to curators about that and they're just a bit confused by that approach. I'm like, it's not rocket science.
0: No, but... But that's the difference when artists curate a show. I'm always drawn to those kinds of projects. But I guess that's because it has the empathy of from the artist's point of view because you're an artist. So you understand what that what that takes. Yes. I think some curators do also.
1: I think they do too. But also to demonstrate trust that Mm. you select them for what they've already achieved Mm. and you want to encourage that and give a further platform for it. So it's not about, oh, Mm. I must, you know, you must shape your work to fit this agenda. That's not my concern at all. So I guess I wanted to continue in my own way to create opportunities for artists Mm. and I haven't always put myself in those exhibitions either i'm happy to be kind of facilitating or mm. outside of it but more recently i've i have kind of been in shows as well mm. so i'm i'm kind of feeling my way through it is still that's yeah. good
0: though I, I think if it was all laid out and you knew exactly what you're doing it would be probably a bit boring <laughs> <laughs> you got to feel your way through in some way but maybe um i really want to talk to you about uh the show that you had Was it at the end of, at the start of this year at the Ian Potter, which I think reflects on this side of your practice as well, where you were invited to work um, with part of their collection at the Ian Potter up at Melbourne Uni and then
1: sort of use that as almost like a material in your own work. Um, That's a really good way to explain it because it's exactly what I did. Lots of my projects are research based. So I'd like to do a lot of research, kind of reading, documenting, lots of looking, but um, I hadn't specifically worked with the collection before even though I am res- often respond to other artworks or other artists works mm. so this was my first chance to do that and it was such a great invitation it was such a great opportunity and I took it really seriously and I looked at everything that I could possibly mm. look at but it was specifically to engage with their decorative arts collection
0: mm.
1: must be huge their collection it's quite a big collection mm. um and decorative arts, for those listening that don't that
0: didn't see the show or don't know what that involves, what kind of objects are in decorative arts?
1: So they might sort of have a suggested function mm-hmm. or use, like a domestic or, um, you know, they could be a vase, they could be a jug, a glass, mm-hmm. and some of them would have been used in that sense and mm-hmm. some of them would have been made as exhibition pieces by artists like ceramicists. So both um, functional both and just sort of or- ornamental, ornamental mm-hmm. objects. Yeah, and then
0: sometimes I mean, where does the <laughs> I'm sort of fascinated in those um, categories that that historians make as well, because for me, often I get I sort of think oh, it's all the same thing. Where does the line end between um, you know sculpture and
1: Um, Ornament. That's a difficult question (laughs) because I also think it ends in different places for Mm. different people. And what I would, I mean, I would classify everything as art and Mm. art practice, but there are important reasons why we maintain the words "craft" Mm -hmm. and talk about that as a as a discipline. But I guess in the sense that these particular works were either, you know, they. That might be to do with scale. It might be to do with materiality. Mm. So they come from a specific decorative tradition. Tradition, yeah. So glassware, ceramics. Mm-hmm. Um, wood. Wood, mm. you know, carving, for instance. Um, and so those kind of things, I guess, lend it to that category. And so um, on that, do you think
0: things that are made now in those materials um, they then go into
1: those categories immediately? Or do you think now it's different? It's different now, mm. absolutely. I mean, contemporary art has kind of just in this rather amorphous way absorbed everything. Mm, hasn't it? <laughs> but when did that <laughs> Which- happen? At, for you, what point? Well, like having looked at this
0: collection and, I mean, how recently are there objects in that collection up to what date?
1: 60s? There's works by Damp in there that yeah, so- are in the collection, so that's quite recent. So in the last maybe five years. And do you think they're in the collection because
0: they were responding because the damp pieces in the collection were broken, um, sort of ceramics pieced back together, weren't they? Yeah, vessels. Plates, vases. So... They're commenting on what's already in the collection. So then that puts them into the collection. So your photographs, say, because in the exhibition there were some some beautiful, a whole lot of beautiful photographs you created using some of the objects from the collection and creating backdrops and studio shoots of those objects and then framing them, putting them into the installation. So say, just hypothetically, if the institution then collected those any of those works of yours, would they go into the ornament collection?
1: I think that's a question for them to. I just but, find it fascinating. Yeah, you know? I, I think f- sometimes depending on how your database works, you might mm. you might actually categorise things as more than as ex- all right belonging to more than one collection, mm. or kind mm. of having like you know hashtag yeah <laughs> hashtag um, decorative art as well as visual art. But yeah, yeah, I, in the case of my work, I guess maybe both. But yeah. But, you know, I'm really interested in context and mm. that's one of the kind of fundamental things in this question is like what is the context for mm. that work of art? Is it being used in, in in a sense in the original, as it was originally intended to be used or we take are we taking these skills and techniques to make objects that are positioned in a totally different environment? Yeah, and how does time affect that
0: and mm. sort of the era that we live in? or um, Yeah, I find it endlessly fascinating. And to think back, I mean, using these objects which were in your exhibition, I loved it. I've got to just say, first of all, I responded very, very sort of viscerally to the whole show and I spent lots of time there and revisited it. But what I loved about it was just taking those objects as a sort of almost like a time machine to imagine the time that they came from and they have this really strong character, all of the things that you chose. So they're quite almost, not anthropomorphized, but... They, you can imagine them as a prop in someone's life or um, sort of like a little symbol of of the time that was happening. Do you think now that happens still? Like do you think ceramicists working now or
1: do you think there's an era now or is it so amorphic? I think there is an era and if you, but at the same time, that, that will only come upon reflection mm. too. So it may take us some time to observe that. Mm. But I do think, you know, in the kind of, Early 2000s, the kind of um, DIY aesthetic emerged very strongly in certain fields within craft, and that what some people sometimes refer to as like sloppy craft you know, those sorts of moments and wonky craft or sculpture can really be uh, tied to a point in time. Mm. But it's, I'm always looking for those connections, but also new ones too, and bringing Mm. things forward or trying to suggest bringing things back, which Mm. is hard, but I think it's an interesting exercise. I recently um, had the privilege of
0: going out to Deakin to see the show that um, James Lynch just curated. The painter John Nixon has collected modernist ceramics um, for the last, oh, you know, probably more than 10 years because he moved out to the area of Eltham and because Eltham was such a strong kind of like village or area in the sort of post war era, and what happened, and I never realized the reason there was such a pottery boom back then was because there were tariffs after the war there was trade was limited, so it was harder to get in China where from like England or wherever Japan or wherever it used to come from um and so a lot of those potters started making stuff because it was just Easier to sort of make your own, and it was also part of their lifestyle. But um, and interestingly, same with things like modernist furniture or you know Featherston furniture. The boom was related to the fact that it was harder to actually furniture back then, or it was expensive, so they learnt the the skills. And I, f- I find that just so exciting. I wish there'd be more tariffs now so everyone would start making their own furniture again. But it was really great to see through these objects, um, which were, like you say, domestic vessels, so pots, jugs, plates, vases, pretty practical things, not really fancy things. Um, there was a language of the, the group that existed Existed at the time, and it, but it, then it is also through a lens of John Nixon curating these objects into a collection, right? And selecting right? them, and selecting mm-hmm. them, and then how that's displayed again by the by the institution. But I found it interesting. They also displayed it really well, so that you could sort of see the the vessels almost related to the friendship groups or the way that this person learnt under this person. And so, even though they're not people you're looking at, they're these. Objects made of a person, but you can see the similarities of so um, skills that they 've passed on, but not just skills and techniques, sort of experimental ideas, which for me is such a beautiful way of talking about kind of human nature and I think through design um and not just art because art's sort of slightly a different thing because it's always so idiosyncratic to one to one artist, whereas through design is almost much
1: more of a tradition of sharing. Um, ways of doing things? Particularly, I mean, I don't know specifically about those works, but mm. in this country, and I'm not an authority on this subject at all, but from my, um, you know, study of it in the 70s, there's a lot of sharing of ideas about mm. how to fire things, how to make clay, mm. where to get the clay from, you know, what types of glazes, what types of treatment, what types of, you know, building and hand forming. That mm. that studio practice and um, w- was a shared kind of yeah possibility or or experience or and that's kind of wonderful and what the work that comes out of that is mm. is unique for those reasons I think yeah yeah and it tracks a kind of time and the way that people
0: lived in a really interesting way whereas now sometimes I feel a bit sad that we don't um because things are so cheap to buy People don't really, even artists don't often don't make their own things. Well, I think
1: there's probably lots of artists practicing in that way mm. on country, in communities, or working mm. with specific kind of cultural heritages in Australia that just is not being shown enough in the mm. contemporary scene, and I agree, or celebrated. And those are many of the things that we we need to. You know, kind of address and highlight this structurally in how we how we engage with craft and design, mm. and how we engage with art. But you know, things like Garland Magazine are consistently doing that too. Mm. So it's just not necessarily happening in the spaces that we're looking at. Mm. Um, it's it's happening more kind of broadly, yeah, mm. and widely
0: actually. And I think sometimes that collapsing of those. Um, you know, it, it seems to be the division creates more of a, I mean, we, we don't speak to each other, That the art-craft thing, it's a bit annoying. It's like if we could collapse that a little bit more so that we're all a little bit more, you know, galleries could show more craft, for example, which they can. They can show whatever they want really, can't they? Institutions can choose yeah, to course. show whatever they want. But traditionally, you know, contemporary art or even the ridiculousness of not showing in some Indigenous Art as contemporary art, you know, that whole thing that's now collapsing. But uh, I've never understood why craft doesn't just fit into that as well, a lot of the time.
1: They're separated. I, I have the same question, and lots yeah. of other artists that I work with have the same question. Mm. I, th- I think for some people, it's about value and control. Mm. And, um, well, and why, by some people, I mean the gatekeepers of certain institutions. And, um, you know, luckily for us artists, practitioners, makers, we're, we just keep making the work and mm. doing what we do. Yeah, um, and being
0: vocal about it and sharing your knowledge with other people and encouraging younger... Well, I think teaching's a really good way to do it as well, is encouraging other artists with those sort of inclinations to put them within that context.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, I w- can do what I have the capacity to do, which mm. is work one-on-one with people, support people individually, whether it's inside or outside of an institution, and it's mm. something that I've always try to do and will continue to do. And I guess, that again, that comes back to why I curated certain exhibitions. But also it can't just be us. It needs to be more than that. Mm, like funding bodies.
0: There will, I mean, a lot of power comes from different areas, I guess, to enable people opportunities. But I think it's good and important to acknowledge that as individual artists we do have that capacity as well. And I see you as one of those people that um, is approachable you know for younger artists to reach out to and I know I have myself and other people have said well you know I see something in you that I'd like to explore or that I want to encouragement in and even as individual artists we do have a lot of agency to enable other people like us to sort of come up.
1: Absolutely Mm. and I think we should but I guess not everybody has the capacity to do that um and not everybody has the interest (laughs) to do that um yeah. Yeah. I also wanted to talk
0: about your sort of start in jewellery as well and how that, I mean, that developed alongside working in galleries and curating and um, writing, but you always were you were making wearable things that whole time as well.
1: Yeah, it's kind of funny because I've done so many things simultaneously mm. in a staggered fashion for a long period of you time have, now. Yeah. But while after studying photography, which was kind of a professional course, I studied arts at La Trobe which I really enjoyed because I majored in art history I studied Italian did cinema mm. studies all those fun things that you do as an art student mm. um and <coughs> ended up doing honours in art history but at the same time I was making jewellery I was trying to you know I've, I've kind of I've always worked and I was making jewellery and selling them at the market at La Trobe uh-huh. when I was studying. And, um, that, kind of kept my hand in and kept kept me interested in what I was doing. But I did a lot of short courses before I actually decided after finishing my art history degree that mm. I would go back and do fine art study and that's what I would do. And I think there's something really practical, approachable, physical mm. about jewellery making that I really loved mm-hmm. and I wanted to, Explore that mm. and the approachability of jewellery and the tactility was like a really nice way to get into kind of thinking about art and culture. I think it's
0: amazing. I think it's really great that you've continued, you know, that you still keep doing it. I think often, well, sometimes <laughs> you see people just shed that part of their early practice and I think what's fascinating is that you haven't really shed any of them. no. But which, still, I don't know about Italian. i never yeah, heard Italian. Maybe, maybe
1: Italian. Italian. <laughs> <laughs> my is pretty bad now. Um, uh, but, yeah, look, I haven't, and to the detriment of some aspects of my practice, but also nah. it's, it's a different thing that I'm practising. It's mm. a different thing that I'm trying to do, which is r- maintain discipline um, but have a dialogue in and around these ideas about mm. genre, about, Discipline about how we practice, what materials we use, how we value them, mm. particularly within kind of this Western canon that, mm. you know, um, kind of it, uh, educative bodies and contemporary art spaces in particular ways are so obsessed with Mm -hmm. yeah so I'm I didn't want to practice in exactly the same way and I wanted to do something different yeah but it's sort of always unfolding
0: actually I think it's fantastic because I think as someone else that works across lots of different realms and often finds it difficult to articulate that or work out how they fit together it's really inspiring to be able to look to another person that's really established and say well Meredith can do it
1: Well, Well, it just means you have to make space for the things that you want to do, and if that's not there, and you can't fit into a box, you Mm. need to make a new box. (laughs) Which is sort of what I do with my art as well, exactly. Constructing different contexts for different things to exist in, and that was the great thing about working at the Potter, is because I was making environments for those. Beautiful objects mm. in a way that I would make environments for the objects I had made myself. Mm-hmm. So it was a process I was very familiar with, but also it was a very playful and enjoyable way to treat them as mm. if they are animate. You know, if this they people are, or yeah, yeah, they have these li- they have a real liveliness about them. Those works,
0: it definitely, and very kind of um, respectful to each object, and sort of like you've, you could see how much time you'd spent thinking about them. But also, what I love about it is. Um, just It just seems it, it's such a nice thing sometimes to have a brief as an artist, which you often don't get. So often, you know, we're making our own briefs or working out what our next project is, writing our own sort of setting. But to be given it something to look at and to respond to is such a nice um, change. It's quite refreshing to see someone that sat down and been able to go, okay, well, this is my brief, is to work with these objects. And then, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about how to do that, um, for myself
1: yeah me too i'm thinking you know in terms of exhibitions that i, I will be doing in the future how can mm. i you know kind of make those opportunities for myself um but it is wonderful to work to a brief mm. and as a project-based artist i'm yeah. not a process-based artist or my process is really about project to project and about research that's so fascinating Same. for me and also i'm really find a feel the limitation of working to a thematic mm. I think that is actually a way of like of closing off what an artist does mm. and what their practice can be whereas if you work to a kind of project or a brief in that way then the artist can really open it out and dictate themselves mm. for themselves what, what parts are more meaningful.
0: Yeah, and I think that, I mean, for younger artists listening maybe or maybe not necessarily younger but people that find it hard to fit into things that exist like that aren't being curated into shows or don't have something to respond to, you know, you can create that yourself. You can write to the Australia Council and say, I'd like to create this whole new opportunity. And what I've found in the past is that artists that do that often then allow that opportunity for other artists like themselves to kind of step in and create a whole new movement or a whole new thing, you know. It takes someone to sort of set those original projects for, for others to jump on board and do it. Sometimes it's just a bit scary though, isn't it?
1: I th- it's a big step and, mm. you know, you need support, you need practice, you need mm. to fail <laughs> yeah, a lot because, you know, uh, of course I've been in a situation where I've applied for lots of things and mm. been unsuccessful but I also spent a lot of time, I have had a lot of time professionally writing those applications mm. for other people so, of course, I've had this great experience but I've also helped people write those applications and I think, you know, we are a community a and we should help each other and r- rely on each other in as mm. much as we can.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. I don't think we do that enough. Like through this project, I've really learned that there's hunger for that. There's a hunger for people to feel like they can reach out a bit more to other people. And um, since I've allowed myself to do that, I feel much more like I'm part of a community than before. I think in our day and age, we feel a little bit more kind of in your studio, stuck there on your own. You have to do it all yourself, or you have to pay someone to do it. But really, there there is other there are other people out there that want to connect as well not just on social media. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Although social media is a good tool, you Mm. know, it's certainly one of the ways that I feel like I keep in touch with what's happening in terms of practice and I follow lots of artists um, on Instagram, for instance, so Mm. they can do a lot of research that way, particularly having a kid Mm. who's, you know, still reasonably little. I can't go to all the openings. I can't always get to all the shows. Mm. Um, I do try, but I do a lot of research that way and I follow a lot of people and I'm really... You Know there's such a thing in Melbourne about you know this. Uh, I've mentioned gatekeeping beho- before, but also like a ticking of boxes. Or you know, you show in the Ari <laughs> sector and yep. then you might show in the kind of chaos organization sector mm-hmm. or whatever it that mm. that next level is. And once you've signed off, then a the curator will consider that you can I can now work with that person. Weird, I don't even isn't know if it? they think about it so mm. sort of strategically, but it does seem to happen and I've observed it happen over many it does years, definitely. Happen. And I'm not interested in that That's at good. all. Yeah. I want to work with with young people, I want to work with older people, I want to learn from my elders and I respect people's practices no matter what age they are. So Mm. part of my curatorial practice or the way I might write about people or research people has always been to like to leave it open Mm -hmm. and I think often there's this sense that you've got to like earn your stripes before you're in that show and actually it's a waste of time Mm. And and it really we could have such a richer exhibition programming a practice in this city if, if people just listened up about that a little bit. We're a bit more
0: open-minded to, you know, not being proven or not being um, collectible or all that kind of stuff that happens.
1: Yeah, collectible I don't care about that, no. No, I know, but it is it is still a thing. and it, Lots of other people do, though. I, mean, yeah.
0: I think it's interesting, though, that more as I get on, I kind of am interested in how you defy that system almost and maintain, as you say, a sustainable practice where you keep getting opportunities, but you're not wed to that kind of value system. It's very system. hard. And, mm. you know,
1: it sounds like I'm talking a big game. But also, you know, I've self-funded my practice for 15 or so years now, and mm. it's it's come to the point where I'm like, okay, I've got a kid. I, mm. I'm, I'm with, I have a partner, but we both work sessionally as teachers. Both you know, artists. We're both artists. It's <laughs> sort of like nightmare scenario. But I'm also <laughs> extremely privileged and we're very, you know, grateful and we, we work hard. Mm. We do, we really work hard. But we have to, so I've started, okay, well, I need to, you know, scale back something. So I write that application for myself mm. to get that funding and we'll try a bit harder. And, um, spend a little bit more time on that arts admin stuff that we all need to do and we all perpetually are doing mm. <laughs> that is never ending and and try and create that space for myself and mm. you know and also not practicing As if I think I'm still a graduate, you know, as I said, I'm in my 40s and it's okay to have one show a year or one show every two years Mm. and not averaging like I think I mentioned to you once in conversation recently that I'd had seven, average seven exhibitions a year since my daughter was born. mental. And it is mental. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not healthy and it's good to think about your mental health Mm. and make sure that you're looking after yourself and the people that you care about as well as much as you can. And
0: I think that then makes your work richer anyway way it's something that I've been hearing a lot from other people I guess our age where you um You know, Agatha was saying something similar where your priorities seem to shift and you want to make sure that the shows that you do have are exactly what you want to be talking about rather than just everything that you can do, but also that you want to slow your practice down to the point that you've chosen, that you're in control of rather than is being enforced on you.
1: I think you can follow a trajectory of invitations Mm -hmm. or kind of – or something that you think you need to be doing, your own sense of kind of box ticking, mm. and sometimes that directs your practice in a certain way and maybe it won't be as satisfying as really thinking about and taking stock of what you want to do with your work.
0: Yeah. Yeah and sometimes that's slow that process that can
1: be slow Mm. (laughs) it's confusing
0: yeah or it can be quiet for a while or i find sometimes it's really busy and then i have to make myself a a time where you have to look after yourself because often you crash and you feel depressed because nothing's on but once you learn how to sort of relax into that space and use it to reflect or to collate what you have done and lay it out on the table and look at it and work out where it's going then it's really rewarding but it's it takes a long time to get to that point to be able to look at your own self objectively and what you've up to that point instinctively kind of just done. in
1: Absolutely. Night. And it's hard to do solo. Um, mm. And, you know, I've certainly been doing it solo for a long time. Mm. I, I mean, I, my partner Ross, of course, I appreciate his contribution and feedback, but there's certain friends that, and peers and, you know, my supervisor when I was doing my PhD, Terry Bird, is you know, I really respect her and her practice. And so having people in my life that I'm slowly feeling better about mm. asking advice yeah. to, so not always being the person that is... Giving advice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't always think that, you know, I, I'm i not the authority but I, I, I will give as much as I can, but I've started to give myself permission to
0: ask too. That's good. I often think about that line in Alice in Wonderland. I can't remember which song it's from, but where she says, I give myself very good advice, but I very seldom follow it, Yeah, which, you know, it's it's true. It's like I can give other people this great advice or I can write a really good review of someone else's work, but I find it really difficult to do that for myself because I don't know what that is. It's a combination of like you don't think you're worthy or you come from, you're too busy or you sort of like put other people before yourself always and then you have a family and you put them before yourself. And I think there's something to be said for actually just not being selfish but actually following your own advice as well. Yes. (laughs)
1: Yes, <laughs> and listening to it, and listening to it, and going mm. with your gut. I'm always saying to my mm. students, you know, they ask me, "Should I put this in? Should I put that in?" I was like, "What's your gut telling you? Like, mm. follow your instincts a little bit, and do you don't make everyone- what you think I want to see. Make mm. what you want to make." But do you think everyone can do that? You have to learn how to do mm. that, and it's about confidence. And you know, people who are in the privileged position that, like I'm in, of teaching others, you have to be that support person. Mm and try and give a student confidence to do that for themselves. Because gut
0: is such a curious thing. I've always trusted my gut to the point where I don't know any other way to do things, you know. I hardly ever think about things properly. I just trust trust my gut instinct on everything, including parenting, including, you know, which is dangerous really. But at the same time when people ask you, how you did something or why you made those decisions, sometimes it's difficult to explain what that gut instinct thing
1: is. It's true. It is hard to explain. Mm. But I think you actually, as artists, we're looking, observing, learning all the time. Mm. And, you know, many of us study and And hone that practice in specific ways. Mm. Others of us practice day to day in other ways that hone those skills. And we need to trust that we are trained. And it's not just Mm. your gut or it's not just intuition. Intuition is based on experience. Things you've read or things you've seen or things you've observed. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And maybe it's, I, I guess, unpacking that a bit, it's nice to think and to allow yourself to do that process as well because I think often what what happens is we sacrifice things like going to see other shows, or I think often people cut that out of their week or whatever because they're too busy. Or, um, but that is part of it
1: is to Absolutely. sort of always if, looking. I'm, I yeah. sort of think it's funny because I'm. I know there's lots of people who disagree with my teaching approach, and I know lots of teachers who have given me different advice, mm. which is like show the thing you're most uncomfortable with. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> and I've done that too in the past, but I'm I don't not, know. About I don't that that know. <laughs> I think, you know, we we all work hard and it's difficult and it's difficult Mm. to put your soul out there all the time too as artists. Like we're so generous with our emotions, with our feelings, with our lives, with our personal history, with our you know with our heritages that it's just it's okay to to hold yourself closely in that moment too Mm. and be protective of yourself. You know, I really I, I think when young people talk about self care and those sorts of things. It's, it is. It's actually very important. We live in really- Scary times. Well, I don't know about scary. I think probably all of time has been scary for other reasons, <laughs> but it's hectic. It's busy. It's in your face. It's mm. invasive all the time. Mm. And for people that are switched onto the world, that can be incredibly draining. Yeah, that's
0: true. And I think even just that, I mean, that gets back to the pace of things again as well. And I think you can dictate that pace. Like a lot of the time when I was younger, I didn't realize that, or I didn't think about that, is that I just thought that full speed was like the pace that you had to go yeah. at in order to achieve anything <laughs> yeah. and only recently I've realised that actually no one else
1: gives a shit about what speed you go at and in fact. And qu- questioning what achieving mm, means, questioning true. what professionalism means. Mm, you know, mm. I learn as much from the other people that I teach with and the other people that are my students about those things. You mm. know, what what it actually doesn't mean. What it do you mean? think it means? <laughs> Well, I think my feelings about what professionalism and what achievement means are changing. You know, mm. I come from particular, I guess, family background where it's always like, "Well, that's a good achievement, Meredith, but what are you going to do next?" You, yeah. know, you know, I've got, I'm very fortunate to have parents who, or have the privilege to have parents who understand artistic practice and the merits of that, mm. but also. Um, who encourage me to practice and to to live my life in the way that I want to do that but yeah. you know they want me to they have always wanted me to achieve mm. and and not to rest on my laurels like mm. work hard yeah yeah same mm. work very hard and then what are you going to do next mm. <laughs> Yeah. So um, now sit around twiddling your thumbs. No, you don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) And if not sure, go and get a volunteer position in another field that will educate you. Do more work for free. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) While you're working out what work you want to do to get paid. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> so, and I'm grateful for that. I, I have worked yeah. hard and I've always worked while I was studying. I washed dishes when I was doing my first undergraduate degree. Mm. And there's a point in that process where I was like, okay, I've offered, been offered a chef, chef's apprenticeship. Am <laughs> I going to do that? Am yeah. I'm going to quit my studies. Yeah. But I decided, you know, part of the other thing that my parents taught me is oh, finish things, mm. you know, finish it and then go back and reflect yeah see
0: but you're just doing all the things still I'm a bit the same it's <laughs> like I don't think I can I, I'm constantly f- I'm finishing all the things still but
1: I, I'm thinking about that now yeah you know what what one another person might think professionalism is mm. um, within certain frameworks is not maybe what I'm going to be kind of pursuing in mm. my teaching career or indeed in my artistic career in the future
0: and I, I heard something interesting the other day just on the professionalism expert sort of side of things. As you get older, you know, you get more knowledgeable about the thing you've been doing for a long time, right? But then there's sort of a weird correlation that sometimes then it's easier to not take as many risks because you know so much about this area. It's quite easy to stay within this area, become an expert. Like, But for me um, and for a lot of people, I think the most interesting work happens when you take risks um, where you might fail or where you don't really quite know what you're talking about yet. Um, and do you think about that stuff? Like what, what's going to put you in a, it's kind of sometimes an uncomfortable place where you don't really know the parameters um, but you need to test out something new to feel like you're alive almost?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and I do make changes in my life to take on those challenges. Mm. Um and it might not, it might be personal, might be social, might be, you know, kind of work-related. But I think it's very, so I think you're trying those opportunities, you're saying yes to things. Sometimes mm. that challenge is saying no to things as well, though.
0: That's true. <laughs> yeah, no to easy things and, or no to, you know, well-paid things to do something that's more, you know, um cerebrally challenging or satisfying, that's hard. I think balancing finances is hard because often the things that pay well um, aren't necessarily the most beneficial for your artistic practice, you know. But sometimes they are and I guess that's part of it, isn't it, learning which one's can tick a few boxes at once.
1: Yeah, and if you fail at something, you learn something. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know, I feel like I've always been doing the wrong kind of work in the right kind of context or vice versa. Well, that's interesting. You know, I, I subletted a friend's studio at Gertrude years ago and I wrote for the whole time that that's I was in there. That's great though. And or, you know, I'm about to move my studio, which is very exciting for me because it's always been at home mm-hmm. except for periods when I've been studying. And... um. You know, I know some of the first things I'm going to make in there are jewelry related. Where are you moving your studio? I'm to? <laughs> moving to um, actually a beautiful studio that's the City of Port Phillip mm-hmm. Studio. Great. Um, at the Shakespeare Grove Studios in the Veg Out Community Garden. Oh, great! So it's in the middle of community garden. <laughs> I feel that like that's Kate really my speed at the moment. She's not there anymore. She anymore. She so Sarah Croist oh, is great. there at the moment. Um.
0: Fiona Williams,
1: I think Janine Eaton might still be there. Cool. Ross Coulter's there.
0: (laughs) Well, that'll be interesting. (laughs) That'll be interesting. (laughs) We'll
1: see how that goes.
0: That sometimes um, putting yourself... In amongst other artists, I mean, particularly when you're a mother and, you know, you say you've had your studio based at home, that's quite exciting to go back into that sort of like, um, you know, community aspect of.
1: I really love it. I hmm. love being around other people. I love talking to people. You know, I'm I'm conscious of people's time too. I'm not going to monopolise, but I I certainly love the social aspect of our industry and our Communities, and that will be really good for me because mm. there are some things that are isolating about having, particularly a baby yeah. and a young child. You don't go to as many openings, do you? Because they're Mate. at that stupid o'clock. <laughs> Who decided
0: six o'clock was a good time?
1: <laughs> this is just although some of them are in the afternoon now. Yeah. But also sometimes your little people just don't want to be they dragged want to around go to an opening. Yeah. yeah.
0: But it is something. I mean, it's a real thing. It, sounds, it seems stupid if you don't have a kid or whatever, but those listening that do, you realise when you have your first child that you don't go to openings anymore for a long time. And if you are a social person like we are, all of a sudden there's quite a big gap there. And so you do have to sort of make other ways to be social, and
1: you get lots of funny questions like, "Oh, I thought you moved <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Aren't you living in Sydney now yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought you died <laughs> Oh no, you just had a kid, but it is it's a real
0: thing, and it's something that um you know, like is good to I love it when shows have a number of different events throughout a program as well.
1: I certainly am um, I'm really interested in in things that you know art. Has many it deals with many different subject matters. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting I would take my kid to everything that I see, or expect that everything mm. is for for younger people. But I'm certainly interested in opportunities where age diverse, mm. a range of ages of people can engage, particularly kids.
0: You
1: mm. know, um, I think we do need to be ex- a bit more inclusive.
0: And it's sort of proven that when you are, it's a it booms. I mean, look at the whole thing that Goma started, really back when they started their really huge kids' programming or even you look at the Melbourne Museum and the success that they've had with their kids' programming um, and now, you know, everyone's doing kids' programming, putting quite a lot of their budget towards kids' programming or artists getting a lot of money. I mean, I know my main income is from doing things for kids. Uh, so it's almost like why do we even <laughs> separate the two things really? And yeah. often adults get into the kids' thing more than the adults'
1: thing anyway. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know? Um you know, yeah, I think the Melbourne Museum programming is really good in a variety of fronts, really, yeah. but also making spaces that are, you know, I guess maybe that's the thing about being a museum, but making spaces where kids are welcome, you know, there's that whole amazing area for kids to play in. And,
0: yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. But I think that, I mean, I guess that as artists we are getting more opportunities to be involved in that sort of side of things, the programming side of things, and God forbid we've reached a time where maybe um, people like architects or CEOs or big people that hold the money purse strings are actually starting to think maybe an artist could come on board and have a look at the way that we do things rather than just give us some objects to put in our space.
1: Is that something that you see? I think it would be wonderful if it's done in a meaningful way. You Mm. know, any engagement with any person or organisation or group needs to be done in a way in which that, The person who is engaged who's coming to to share their knowledge Mm. is actually given – a say a proper say control Mm. given to control if you want an artist to come in and and tell you how to develop a program let them develop the program even (laughs) just to do a work
0: i mean recently i worked with the state library and i was so impressed at how much freedom they gave me and it really the only things they said to me were what does it mean and you know what's your statement and do you need any help again that's trust and support And that's sort of what artists thrive on really is that rather than saying, well, actually maybe we thought you could put in a bit of this or because (laughs) that's usually what happens is that you're treated as a sort of, um, you know, lower than a service provider sometimes. Yeah. But it's that. I guess it's that artist's gaining respect of being also a professional and and actually believing that and part of the time it's the fact that artist needs to say, you know, actually, no, I do know what I'm talking about and if you want me to do it, then allow me to do it. And maybe like that thing about being between worlds I reckon is something that you, you know, you own quite well and a lot of people don't or don't know how to but there's a real power in that, just owning being between worlds and making your own sort of, as you say, your own box or your own category. But it's something you've got to check in with all the time, don't you? Like you're not doing too much of one part of your practice or do you think about that pragmatically or is that just instinct-based?
1: Both, mm. uh, and it's it is always changing, and I think sometimes when you neglect a part of your practice or process comes back and tells you, <laughs> and Bites right, you're in the I bum. I <laughs> better start writing or I feel very strong desire or think, you know, yeah, do, I, I think t- those taking stock moments are really important mm. and I don't know if I have slowed down until recent years to really do that. What is the next five years of my practice going to look like? What do I want to do with that very precious time? Mm. What do I want to do with the privilege that I have and the opportunities that I have? Mm. How do I live and practice in an ethical way? And do you write those things down? Sometimes. Mm. <laughs> That's very good. It's probably real daggy, but yes. Yeah, no, it's great. <laughs> yeah.
0: I think it's a. I think it's a process that we all should do. I mean, my partner tries to make me do it all the time and I get as far as talking about it, but I hardly ever write it down. But I think part of it is because I feel silly doing it or I feel like oh, no one cares. Why am I doing this? But really you're doing it for yourself so that you can look back at it and go, well, I think it's also
1: nice to reflect on what you have achieved, which is also something Mm. we're not necessarily good at doing. (laughs) doing. Yeah, Yeah. and um, giving yourself permission to look through some of the obstacles that you've overcome or might not necessarily Mm. be that. It might be about just like even taking stock you know, it might be a quantitative study of what you've done. You're like, well, wow, okay, that's stop a lot. Take. Yeah. <laughs> like an idea to stop take.
0: Yeah. That would be a good thing to do, actually.
1: Well, for me, it's always, I I often do a bit of counting. I'm like, okay, there's a lot of shows, that's a lot of things, mm. that's all of that. and Put it in perspective. Yeah, try and put it in perspective.
0: Oh, it's been so good talking to you about this. I mean, it's made me think, hmm, I'm just going to spend the rest of the afternoon And write some things, (laughs) count some things and just make me feel good about what
1: I have achieved rather Um, than what I
0: need to achieve.
1: And maybe thinking about who you would like Mm. to ask for some support as Mm. you make a platform for other people to talk about their work and practice and process Mm. and ideas. Someone said
0: that to me the other day. It was quite funny. They said, oh, it's been great, this project, but I think you need to stop and think what you really (laughs) want to do. And I was like this is what I want to do, <laughs> this is I'm doing what I want to do. But it is quite funny because you think, oh, there's a point where you can get lost in, you can get lost in ideas and you can get lost in other people's practices, Well, I can quite easily. And there, are, for me there's times where you have to sit down and go, what is my practice again? Like, and there's a balance between
1: that, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, this is definitely part of it, of course. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, well, well, maybe it might be nice to think about what to make next and that's that's exactly what i do when mm-hmm. i when i kind of shift from context to context what what is you know going to be the next stage of development for my practice now what do i want to learn which way do i want to point
0: it mm. as well and what do i want to learn and and sometimes that can be free flowing and open ended which is quite nice and then sometimes the answer comes out of that doesn't it like yep, absolutely. and for me yeah it's sort of going between the two like the strict pointing of okay now you're going to be making this set of objects for this outcome or i'm going to let myself find that outcome through a process yeah
1: maybe no objects
0: yeah maybe <laughs> yeah more and more so <laughs> actually talking to agatha was quite nice because um, she was just like no 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 objects for me <laughs> like, oh wow what a dream like no objects but at the same time i like that i like objects me too obviously <laughs> yeah but it is that sort of, like, push and pull, isn't it, between ideas and objects sometimes. Yeah. They can complement each other, but you almost have to find reasons for the objects to be,
1: don't you? I think so. If we're creating stuff in the
0: world. Yeah. We should have a reason and a rationale for doing so. Unless it's functional, which is also why functional objects are quite nice, isn't it?
1: But who knows? <laughs> who knows what its Maybe function that might maker be? maker was thinking about something entirely different. That's true. And
0: they could just sell it if it was a jug. <laughs> The conundrum goes on and on. It's like a never-ending story. I feel like we've probably reached towards the end of our little session and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It feels like we've been talking for about 30 seconds. Um, So thank you so much, Meredith. It's been a joy. Thanks, Ty. Lovely to be here.
1: I used to be a carpenter, used to make bookshelves and tables. The smell of wood shavings, the feel of grain under my fingertips. They'd stay with me inside my head and in my dreams while I slept. At the end of the day, at the end of the day. This is
0: the last episode of season two, and what a lovely, reflective way to finish the series. Throughout this conversation and listening back, I realised that ideas of sharing knowledge, trusting your instincts and trusting artists emerged as a general theme. I love how we both agree on the importance of community and the tools to keep in touch, the reason to reach out and the importance of finding ways to research in the real world, beyond going to university and exhibition openings. I was really inspired by how Meredith seems to be very conscious of slowing down her practice. Or as she says, not practising as if I'm still a graduate. Taking control and setting your own pace and priorities. Looking after your mental health and the people you care about, as well as your career. So many solid tips. Meredith reminds us that it's okay to ask for advice. It really seems so simple and obvious, but often we forget to do it. Permission to ask and to listen to what your gut is telling you. And finally, giving yourself permission to make the right kind of work in the wrong context or just make what you want to make. I love how she talks about holding yourself closely and giving yourself time and space to reflect on what we have overcome and achieved and how we've got to where we are today. Amen. This conversation was hosted by me, Ty Snaith. I'm an artist, for those of you who don't know my work. I'm actually making a series of artworks inspired by each of these conversations. The first iteration was shown recently at Sarah Scout Presents. The exhibition's over now, but you can see the documentation on my website. For more information about this project and the artists I'm speaking to, head to tysnaith.com. This is the last episode of the season, but stay subscribed for more in the future. If you haven't already, have a listen back to season one. Just scroll back through your podcast feed. Thanks to my audio producer, Beck Fari, and Melbourne musician, Fia, spelled P-H-I-A, for letting us use this track, End of the Day, from her album, The Ocean of Everything. This podcast was originally conceived as part of the exhibition, Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. This second season and the exhibition is supported by the Australia Council for the Arts.